In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever had your tea from a saucer? When I was a young lad, the old people who were still alive at the time had the habit, in the privacy of their own homes, of cooling their tea by pouring it from the cup into the saucer and then raising the saucer to their lips and drinking it off. Etiquette varies, and it may well have been a hangover from an earlier time when tea was indeed drunk from a bowl or a basin. It was very much regarded as a homely thing, and they were initially intrigued when I imitated my grandfather by doing it, and then appalled at the thought that I might do it when I was out visiting with them. It was seen as something homely, but perhaps a sign of being a little too countrified. Etiquette varies all over the world. What are good manners? How you should behave. But etiquette all over the world pretty much has the same goal as far as I understand it. It indicates a respect, a respect for one's host, respect for a guest, very, very primitive things. Respect for others around you, the creation of social ease to ease the atmosphere and the avoidance, the avoidance of disgust. So slurping, eating with your mouth open. So etiquette has a purpose. People who laugh at this stuff will stop laughing when they see the results of not observing any etiquette, which is that you're barely able to eat a dinner without throwing up because of the behaviour of people around you. I remember in those days, if adults approved of a child, they would comment contentedly that that gossur, as we called a child, it's a Gaelic word, a gossur, a child, has great rearing on him. She has great rearing on her. Or she has no rearing on her. And rearing was was not quite breeding, it was it was manners. There were manners that were being discussed. Now it's interesting that manners generally don't stop at not causing disgust. They generally don't stop at just creating the minimum of social ease. Very quickly, and, and it's not just among wealthy people, I saw this among poor people. People have a great need for beauty. And there will always be a quality of the superfluous, of the gratuitous in manners. It's kind of like the incense that used to be thrown on the, in the bowl before the idol, before the God. It's like the incense that we offer up at the altar before God. It's gratuitous. It's an act of worship almost, even if you don't believe in God. The ancient Greeks used to, um, part of their etiquette, the very ancient Greeks, was that they would never drink wine neat or straight, as the Americans say. They would water it slightly because humans should not be as the happy gods. You would make the gods jealous. So you water your wine as an act of humility before God. And they would always splash a drop on the ground. That was the libation. That was for the gods. And you see there where in the, in the pagan cultures, right before the gospel was preached at all, they turn towards God like a tropism. Human beings do. There was a yearning in all of creation for the Redeemer, a yearning for God. That sense of the gratuitous, of the extra, the little bit of beauty in one's life. I see in that a reflection of our, our being made in the image and likeness of God. And so manners have a quality of the sacred to them, I would argue to you. I remember in the poorest houses, the fireplace would be beautifully painted. There would be a few nice curtains, even of cheap material. And there would be a lovely dresser. Do you remember the dressers? They were a serious bit of kit. 
and they were full of colour. And they contained the best china in the house, a row of jugs, a row of platters, of willow pattern platters. Probably none of it very expensive or good, but they were the pride of the house. All the good stuff in the house was on display in the dresser. Even in the poorest houses, there was this sense of beauty. It was a respect for oneself, a respect for the family, a respect for the breeding and the stock you came from, an expression of your aspirations. It was ultimately a reaching out to God. It was a reflection of God. It was showing that we are sons and daughters of God. And a house that could have a parlour had a parlour, and that parlour was hardly ever used, and that's much laughed at now. The parlour that was hardly ever used, the Sanctum Sanctorum, as it were, the Holy of Holies. The parlour that was hardly ever used, and the good china that was hardly ever taken down. I used to think that was nonsense, and you should use the good china. until I came to realise as the years passed that people, people quite naturally establish sacred space when they can. And the parlour was sacred space. The parlour was that beautifully furnished room, furnished often above the financial capacity of the family, into which only visitors were brought and the stations were held. And the priest had his, had his breakfast after the station mass. It was, as, again, as it, it was the room where, as it were, the aspirations, the gentility, the courtesy, the, the, the profound humanity of the family were expressed. And so it was, in a sense, a sacred place where generally people didn't go in. The good china, again, was only used for the most special occasions, for, for special guests. I argue to you that before we talk about liturgy at all, we, we have a tremendous sense of the sacred. We have a tremendous instinct, because we live in space and time, to sanctify space and time, and to set aside special space and special time for the worship of God. And this comes to us naturally, as does the etiquette that goes with it, as etiquette is a part of our... I mean, I love the way etiquette varies as well. In, in France, I'm told, according to the traditional bourgeois manners in, in France, you never ask for salt at the table or pepper. You never season your food at the table if you've been invited to dinner. Never. Because that suggests that your hostess has not seasoned the food perfectly. And by definition, your hostess, even if she cannot cook to save her life, or your host, have by definition, by the rules of hospitality, perfectly seasoned the food. And if it's not, you must offer it up for the holy souls. <laughs> That's it. There you are. It's the will of God. You're stuck with it. You do not ask for the salt. You're insulting the cook. Uh, in Ireland, we tend to reach for the salt before we even taste the food and lash it with vigour all over it. But there again, manners vary. Now, Let's move this on just a tiny bit. And I know I'm going round the country for sport, but still sport is a, is a noble instinct. There's nothing wrong with circling the campfire for a while. You look at the traditions of the nobility, because a great deal of our, our manners are inherited from the nobility, who are the only ones with money and leisure to really develop this stuff. Peasants had to spend a huge amount of time just surviving. Okay, And even they, as I said, could aspire to some beauty, and some, but the nobility more so. And indeed, the liturgy reflects to an extent, liturgists will tell you aspects of the Byzantine royal court and uh, other royal courts in various stages of the development of the mass. Uh, liturgists will tell you that. 
What I'm talking about here, this whole business of manners, of knowing how to behave, how to stand before the world, the instinct to create sacred space, the instinct to behave with courtesy, graciousness, to go beyond what's utilitarian, to lend something of beauty to one's life, to put the best of everything before a guest. This instinct, of course, was could be practised most magnificently by the nobility who had the money to do so and the leisure to develop culture. And so we have, uh, in Roman times, Cicero talked about it in, in his book on, on the orator and in his book on duties. Uh, he talked about all of this. Talked to, he talked about, really, the, the lady and gentleman. And, and then in the Middle Ages, you had the development of it. And, and then yeah, very much, you know, with a Christian slant. And in the 16th century, you had that famous novel by Baldassare Castiglione, um, Il Cortiere, The Courtier in which he talks about the behaviour of the lady and gentleman at the royal court and how one should conduct oneself. And, of course, by implication, how one could hope to get on. <laughs> because your manners were crucial to your getting on. Nobody was going to promote or encourage the company of a boor. In the 17th century, uh, the Jesuit priest Balthazar Gratien, the Spanish priest, wrote a famous book called The Art of Worldly Wisdom, which is regarded as one of the classics of Spanish literature. And it's, as I remember, it's a set of aphorisms. It's, it's often quoted in business literature. Now, Gratien was, a, a, he was, I'm sure, a holy man, but he was also a very worldly Jesuit. And he was telling his, his young aristocratic students how they could hope to get on in life, how to dress, how to have manners, how to behave how to survive in the politics of the court. There's a whole literature that goes on right to the present day as to how one dresses, how one behaves, how one conducts oneself, and by implication, how one can hope to get on because one must acquire the social graces. And for instance, Debrett, the famous uh, English manual of style, well, they also have a, what is it, a book, a list of the peerage and all that kind of thing, I think. But anyway, they have a famous manual of style, which is, you know, continually in print, if you glance through that, you'll see these detailed rules as to how to choose stationery for correspondence, how to address your invitations, how to address your boss, how to address the various ways of addressing people, how modern manners have changed, right down to how you, the famous conundrum in English manners as to how one is permitted to eat peas. Uh, traditionally, one keeps the fork turned with the tines down and one squashes the peas with a knife against the tines of the fork and thereby conveys them to the educated mouth. <laughs> and there are people who will judge another person by watching them at the table to see what they do with the bees. <laughs> In the same way as, as the way you talk may be judged. You know, the way you talk. The, the English who have a very highly developed class system and still have it, uh, and it can be very detrimental. Sometimes the English people would say, the English would have an elaborate set of rules particularly the upper middle classes and what's left of the aristocracy. The, even the way you talk and the way you say things. One Irish woman, a scion of a Protestant ascendancy house, which is, I think, probably now long gone, she wrote a book there, The Secret Garden, some years ago. I can't remember her name. But she wrote a book just about growing up in a, in a crumbling old big house in Ireland. But she, she talked about how back in the 60s, her sister was, was going out with a whole lot of different people. And so all sorts of boys from all sorts of backgrounds would, would call to the house to pick her up. And how her father was reading the paper one evening and uh, in the drawing room and he looked up and saw a young man sitting there nervously and he asked him crossly, what are you doing there? And the young man stammered, my lady friend is in the toilet. And the comment of the author was, never in history did a man so condemn himself out of his own mouth. <laughs> 
by referring to a girlfriend as a lady friend, by referring to the loo as a toilet. <laughs> My lady friend was in the toilet. He had identified himself immediately. <laughs> Her father kept reading the paper. So the, the purpose of this long-winded lead-up is that before you start laughing at liturgists, and liturgists do need to be laughed at like the rest of us, okay? Because they get silly. Before you start laughing at liturgists, before you start becoming impatient with the liturgy and with the rubrics, with the so-called, you know, the rubrics, because they were written in red, the, so, the instructions in the missal, before you, before you get narky about these things, just consider that manners haven't gone away, they've just changed. And in some cases, they haven't changed, usually. Oh, you can say what you like. I used to say this to students. But if you go into an interview, let's say a young man goes into an interview and he's, he's wearing white socks, don't flatter yourself that that won't be noted instantly and won't be the subject of amused and contemptuous comment the moment the young man leaves and he hasn't a notion, unless he's brilliant, of getting much further. So it really would repay study because these are the rules, many of them unwritten, by which people get on and by which they judge the situation and sometimes judge people which they shouldn't do. This is before we come to any consideration of the liturgy. This doesn't go away. We are a species who use ritual constantly in our secular lives in order to manage the space we live in and to manage the company we keep and to deal with the world. So that starts before you ever go to church. And I don't know if we've ever been less well equipped to appreciate liturgy than we are now. And the reason being is that since the 60s and maybe even the 50s, there's been an increased contempt with and impatience with courtesy, etiquette and ritual, even though those things never go away. They simply go into hiding. They simply go, they, they go on the run in the mountains, but they're always there. I can assure you, even among the Black Lives Matter crowd and the Antifa and all these people, there's an etiquette. Of course there is. You can see it already. Stuff you can say, stuff you can't say. Even going beyond all reason. Every revolution immediately produces its own set of manners and its own etiquette. Straight away. And I think I've mentioned before dancing. I remember again a man I knew commenting on how uh, he remember back in Dublin growing up in the, in the 40s. One of the first things a young man would do is take dancing lessons. Now if he couldn't afford them he'd hope to get them free from somebody. If he could afford he'd pay and people made a living from teaching dancing. And it was crucial for a young man and woman to learn to dance. And it was crucial for a young man to learn to dance. And apparently sportsmen were particularly good at it. They were quite complicated dances that required coordination. Like the foxtrot, the jive, all this stuff, the all different types of waltz. And the ability to dance was prized. Modern dancing is formless. Now, this formlessness, and, and we talk about this again. The German novelist, uh, is it Robert Mosbach, has, has written a famous book on the liturgy uh, called uh, Against the Heresy of Formlessness, where he's talking about the huge challenge of explaining liturgy in the modern world, where etiquette has become so subtle because life has become so morphous. And so a lot of dance now has no steps. And the ri dance is a ritual. It is a ritual between the sexes. And again... Modern dancing is very is very laid back. You you can see now, for instance, uh, since the sixties, men haven't worn headdress. Now men are stopped wearing a cravat, a neck dress, which goes back for centuries. So an open neck shirt, although albeit with perhaps a very elegantly tailored suit, is now acceptable in in what would have been considered once quite formal situations. People increasingly at work don't wear as formal clothes as they used to. Uh, let's say in offices and that kind of thing. 
And so it's getting harder to explain liturgy. But if people examine their lives, ritual hasn't gone away. It has just become more subtle. But it hasn't gone away. And so I come to a discussion of God's table manners. And an old priest once described the rubrics at Mass as God's table manners to us in the seminary. Particularly in the old Mass, but even watching a priest who can say the Novus Ordo well, and sadly many of us are slobs. I'm sorry. When I was a kid, if somebody was, was clumsy, they'd say, oh, slobber the broth. <laughs> I thought it was a great line, slobber the broth. And it was a way of describing somebody who simply couldn't control his soup. <laughs> it was going all over the table. Slobber the broth. And I'm afraid we're slobbering the divine broth. We're up there and we're being dragged behind a tractor where we come out looking as if we've been pulled through a hedge by a cart horse with the investments that increasingly cost a fortune and they're increasingly cheap, cheap and ugly looking, even though they cost a fortune. And then we slobber around on the altar and we never shut up. Lord Almighty, you get this line of blather at the beginning of the Mass. Then you get a sermon that goes on forever. Then you get another line of, of, of raveling and blather at the end of the Mass. The priest never shuts his gob. He never shuts it. He never zips it. He never stums. You know? The old Mass was full of silence. It was full of reverie. It was full of space in front of the deity. It was full of manners. Full of etiquette. And etiquette gives space. Etiquette draws lines. It teaches you the steps. It teaches you how to pick up your peas on the fork at the table of heaven so that you don't make God throw up. God love God. We really must sicken him sometimes. They used to say about somebody, only his mother could love him. I'd say only God could love us. Only God could put up with us and, 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 and look at us because we, we have appalling manners. And we used to be on our best behaviour at the altar. On behalf of everyone, the priest approached God with the exquisite manners of a courtier, like Castiglione's Cortiere. Uh, exquisite manners, elegant. And I remember exquisite manners in the mouths and gestures of poor men and women when I was a kid. There were manners in little Irish cottages that were far more elegant than the manners of the richest millionaire now. And the priest did that for everybody. And now I'm afraid we must take responsibility for the vulgarization of the liturgy. A lot of the responsibility lies with the culture, but a huge amount of it lies with the priests. I'm sorry to say that, but look, let's name this, okay? Because we're the leaders. If you sit at the table and you eat, a, you know, a plateful of bacon and cabbage with your fingers burping all the way through it, you can hardly then turn to your kids and give out to them for having bad manners at the table when they're looking at this veritable pig of a parent who's there snuffling in the trough at the top of the table. And in the same way, I'm not saying that we're pigs. Most priests are good men. And a priest is a priest. I'm a priest, but I have to respect the priesthood, which comes from Christ. But crikey, we've let the ball drop. You know, we're very sloppy at the altar and there's no, there are no two ways about it. And priests are often very sloppily dressed in the, in the thing. And again, a priest is never away from the Mass. The priesthood is incomprehensible outside of the context of the sacrifice and the Mass. He's never away from the Mass. You should be able to smell the Mass off him. As uh, Don Mark Kirby, I remember saying from Silverstream, said in one talk he gave us, the old people used to say that uh, a good priest, you should smell the prayer off him. You should be able to smell the Mass off him. That's where he comes from. That's the centre of his life. That's the centre of what he does, the centre of his definition. And his manners at the altar are total. But that's it.
lay people have a way to go as well. It takes two to tango, and with all due respect to lay people, we're both good dancers, okay? <laughs> We've helped each other to get into this mess. We're leaders, so we take most of the blame, but you can take a bit of it, so don't get cocky. You can take a bit of it. I refer you to a wonderful little book by Romano Guardini, the early 20th century theologian who, who was a huge influence on, on Benedict XVI. Sacred Signs. Now, Guardini was famous for his The Spirit of the Liturgy, and Benedict XVI wrote his own book about the liturgy, which he called The Spirit of the Liturgy, in homage to Guardini, who wrote the earlier book by the same name. But he has this slim little book, uh, which is still in print, you get it on Amazon, Sacred Signs, and it just goes through, the, it was printed back in 1911, and it's still highly readable, and it just goes through the signs. And he talks about kneeling, standing, crossing oneself, the table manners of God. He doesn't call it that, but the table manners of God, the use of holy water, the linens on the altar. Though, do you see the way this is going? The linens on the altar, like the linen on a table. Do we even give the altar the respect that we would give a table if we'd guess? I, I would warrant that there's better linen on some tables in dining rooms than there is on the altars in the neighbouring churches nowadays. And Guardini goes down through those, the, the sacred signs. Just listen to a comment that he makes that just it outlines. Now, he's writing in 1911, remember, 1911. And already you could see the problem emerging because 1911 is modern. He, he's a nice turn of phrase. They, obviously, this is, he was German. This is an English translation. But in our day, even the sense that paradise is lost is lost. We are too superficial to be distressed by the loss of meaning, though we are more and more glib about the surface sense. We pass words from mouth to mouth as we do money from hand to hand and with no more attention to what they were meant to convey than to the inscription on the coins. The value mark is all we notice. They signify something but reveal nothing. So far from promoting the intercourse between man and nature, they clatter out of us like coins from a cash register and with much the same consciousness as the machine has of their value. So he's talking there about how glib and superficial modern culture has become. It's, etiquette is still there, but we're becoming less and less uh, attentive to it. And it's becoming more and more informal and it's becoming less and less able to reflect the true mystery and the true beauty of life. And now we come to the church. And we come to the church as these people who are irremediably and incurably ritual and yet living in an age at which we're suffering from a terrible dysfunction and alienation from our own nature because we're fighting our own tremendous need for ritual and the way it expresses some of the most beautiful and deep things in life. And so we come to the church and God's table manners. And the church is a terrible place. That used to be written and carved, that scriptural quotation around sanctuaries. The locus terribilis, the terrible place, the sanctuary where the sacrifice exists. The sacrifice of the Master doesn't repeat Christ's sacrifice, but it participates in Christ's sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice is present on the altar. The same sacrifice, not repeated, the same sacrifice. Even a church in ruins is a terrible place. Remember Shakespeare's bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, which is a clear reference to the recently despoiled Abbey churches. He's writing in the late 16th century. That's on at 73. His famous line, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. There was more than a hint of Catholicism in Shakespeare's background and some people would argue that uh, Shakespeare was a Catholic, a secret Catholic. 
Now, here's the question you have to ask even in a ruined church. Who am I? Why am I here? What is this place? You must ask that or you have no business there. It's not a warehouse and you'd ask it anyway even if you were in a warehouse. What am I doing here? Why are you in the church? What has brought you there? What has called you there? Is it, in the words of Eliot, so that you may kneel and pray where prayer has been valid? Do you believe you are in the presence? And consider what the presence means. Now, most of us don't know royalty and we don't spend our time in the presence of royalty. Uh, I noticed that in the new translation, which came, came back some years ago, the retranslation of the, of the English Missal, we're addressing God again as your majesty which is quite proper. You have to ask yourself why you're there and what you believe is there. And if you're in the presence of God, you must consider that that dictates everything, at least as much as the presence of an honoured guest would dictate everything in your home. The hurried attempts to tidy, the, the polishing, the cleaning, the getting everything ready, the good china, the whole bit, the linen on the table, at least as much as the presence of an honoured guest. I mean, if you were in the presence of royalty, consider the way people behave. If, if people are meeting the Queen of England, don't they bow and then approach and then bow again? Just as the priest used to do going up to the altar. And as the priest is still supposed to do. People back out of the presence of Her Majesty. They back out of her presence. So they not, do not turn their back on, this, on the, the anointed presence of the monarch. I mean, if you're in the presence of, the cre of your creator, of God, Shouldn't there be at least as much ceremony about that? Isn't that healthy for you to do that? Unless he's not your creator. Unless he's not God. Unless he's not there. In which case you're in a rather spooky looking building and really you'd be better off going for a pint. Because for some people the pub is probably a sacred place. And so I, I want to get into this thing of the, the court manners in the presence of God, the table manners of God, the, the manners one should be using in the presence of God. Now, I, I'm assuming that you have made the decision you are in a church because you believe God is there, that God is present in the tabernacle there. Okay, if the tabernacle is in some way visible and hasn't been tastefully and, and liturgically relocated to the, to the outhouse at the back or something or out in the garden or down at the bottom of the shed. Presumably that the Lord has, has been left in some way visible. Everything is dictated by that. So you consider what you're doing if you believe that God is present and you're not behaving yourself with any kind of decorum or respect. So you're behaving like a pig. I'm saying it to myself as well. Padre Pio used to shout it at people who were insincere in the confessional. Mayale! Pig! Yeah? If you're going to behave like a pig, maybe you should go to a sty. I'm sorry, no, I'm saying this to myself as well as you. Don't get up on your high, your high pig. You're a human being, so stop oinking about the place. And behave yourself. And pull yourself up. And Like you go to Mass on Sunday, dress up. Dressing up is a very primitive thing. You dress up for something special. There are people who go to Mass looking as if they've just cleaned out the septic tank. And then if they go out to dinner that evening, or they go to a disco, they go out looking like a million dollars and smelling like a rose garden with a, a fortune of cologne or, or perfume on them and the best of everything on them. But in the presence of God, they, they go into the sacred, into the holy presence. Look, will you just follow the logic you've started? If you believe he's there, will you have manners? You behave yourself. You know, and don't, don't disgrace your mother, you know? Know how to behave yourself. Wash behind your ears. Put on a clean shirt, for God's sake. 
If God is there, he's there. And that dictates everything. It dictates the way you will behave. It dictates your manners, your etiquette, the way you will behave. Similarly, if you pass the church, let's start with outside the church. If you pass the church, I would put it to you, not every culture does this. And I remember back in the 80s when I was a student in Rome, the Romans would look at us quizzically because the Irish students would always bless themselves passing a church. And of course, in Rome, you pass to church every second minute. Bless yourself passing a church. It's a good custom. It means you know who's in there. Bless yourself passing a graveyard and have some respect for the holy souls. And stop being so stuck up just because you're still alive. Because you're going to die like they died. Okay? So pray for them as you pass the graveyard. Because you hope someday somebody will pray for you. Don't be such a spoiled brat. Bless yourself passing the graveyard. Bless yourself passing the church. I remember a Protestant friend of mine telling me that one of the most impressive things he ever saw as a child that made a lasting impression on him was in the 1940s. And he was with his father on the bus going up from the Houston station going up to O'Connell Street. And the bus passed, I don't know how many churches, wasn't there? Arden Key is still there, but it's closed. There must have been three or four churches, if not more, to be passed on the way up. And he noticed on the bus that all the men were wearing hats. The hats would all come off together and then the hats would go back on. And then later the hats would all come off again and then the hats would go back on. And he was deeply impressed by this and was pulling his father's sleeve, asking him, why are they taking off their hats? And his father told him to shut up and mind his own business. Those were the table manners of God, the manners of heaven. Will you have some manners? Show some respect to your God or have the decency to say you don't believe in him or have the decency to say you do believe in him, but you won't respect him. You hate him. You're turning your back on him. You rebel. Will you be man or woman enough to do something? I've said before, will you please make a decision? And then that decision must inform your manners. You must follow the logic of that decision. You go into the church, take holy water. Jordan Peterson tells people who suffer from depression, will you take medication if it's there, if it's on offer? Take what your society can give you and don't be in pain if it can be avoided. Take the sacramentals the church offers you and don't be in spiritual pain. You're a physical person. Cross yourself passing the church. Go in. Touch holy objects. Take holy water. Lash it on. Stick your head in it. I don't mean that, obviously, but you know what I mean. Enjoy what the church gives you. Genuflect the minute you go into the church. You are in the presence of the creator of the universe and your creator. So you don't walk up to him and hold out your hand and go, leave it there, like, or how she couldn't. You genuflect, which is an ancient, ancient gesture of fealty to one's Lord. You genuflect, you take a knee. Not this craven taking a knee because you're browbeaten into it nowadays or you won't be allowed to go out and play on, on, on the pitch or come out on the stage or whatever it is. That's a perversion of it. This is a free man or woman kneeling to their creator, to their God, a deliberate, intentional act which is revered even by the angels. A deliberate, free act of a man or woman who could rebel if they so wished and have been given that terrible, horrible freedom. Genuflect to him when you come in. Then you go up, genuflect again in front of the sanctuary. What's it going to do? It's going to cripple you? Come off it. If you can't genuflect, bow. And do it with a bit of grace. You should have a bit of style about this. Okay, you're a courtier. You're an aristocrat by your baptism. You're an heir to the kingdom and an heir to God's family. You'll partake forever in the life of the Trinity. 
So, I mean, behave with a little elan, a little bit of, as the Italian, as Castiglione would have said, a bit of sprezzatura. Show a bit of leg, for goodness sake. A bit of ankle, you know? Go up there and, uh, no, I'm scandalising you now, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to express this. You know, could we actually show ourselves worthy of a God who has given us access to everything? To all beauty, all truth, everything. Could we manage not to scratch and pick our noses and gawk at the painting? Go in with a bit of style. Okay, sweep in as if you own the place, which you do. Genuflect, graciously. Little hint of insolence, because God likes that. Look, when you're God, you don't need people to lick up to you. So the favoured son, the favoured daughter, yeah, you get away with a little bit of cheek. You genuflect. You genuflect again. This doesn't take anything from you except to show that you have elegant manners and you know how to behave. Get into little acts of devotion when nobody's around. Do. I, I don't hold with people prostrating themselves during the Mass. Sometimes the very devout will do it and then somebody breaks their neck over them while trying to get back into their seat after communion. But prostration when you're on your own might be a nice thing to do. You know, as a little secret sort of devotion to God. It's a little kiss. Little acts of affection, devotion. And this creates what the business people call a reinforcing circle. The more you believe in God, the more you love God, the more you should show it in, in the manners of the way you behave in his presence. The more you behave in his presence with love, with affection, with elegance, with style, the more you'll believe. Around and round it goes. Reinforcing circle. I don't think you can go wrong. I mean, Jesus Christ told us, when you fast, don't go around with, as we say in Ireland, a puss on you. A puss in Ireland is it's from the Gaelic. It means, you, you know, a long, wry face. He said, don't be going round like that. You know, spreading misery everywhere. He said, dress up to fast. Put on your best clothes. Broil on your head, you know, as they used to do then. Gel your hair if you have it. I don't have any gel. You know, if you have it, gel it. Look your best. And that's how you fast. God loves you. He wants you to look your best. He wants to enjoy you. You're in the presence. You genuflect, you cross yourself, take holy water, be completely at home and yet completely reverent, completely courteous, respectful, little bit of cheek always, little bit of attitude. Remember he loves you. All your movement in the church must be with reference to the presence. Never cross the line of the tabernacle without making your respect. Either genuflect or bow. Never. And we are all let to blame here, priests and laity. Do not turn your back on the tabernacle unless you absolutely have to. Don't talk in the church beforehand. Don't engage in profane conversation in the church before and after. I'm not blaming you for it. It's very natural because we're all meeting. You're there to worship God. It's not primarily a place for the community to meet. That's a secondary and a beautiful side of it. It is primarily a place for the community to engage communally in the worship of God. You're there in the presence. So you don't cross the line of the tabernacle without genuflecting. And I would genuflect always on entering and always on leaving the church, even if you've already done it up at the sanctuary. The old Irish monks, particularly the reforming monks of the 7th and 8th centuries, who called themselves the Kelly Jade, the vassals of God, they used to love to do multiple genuflections. They do a few hundred genuflections in a day. Mael Ruin, the abbot of Tala, I think he commented about one monk, the day will come when he won't be able to genuflect. And sure enough, he ended up with rheumatism and he couldn't genuflect because he did too many. So I'm not suggesting you do 5,000 genuflections, but one or two wouldn't break the bank.
I mean, one or two won't lend you an accident in emergency. Let's not be precious. And as I said, kneeling before your creator, your sovereign, your lord is an honourable occupation. You are a knight or a lady of the court. You belong there. And you do this with all the dead, the so-called dead, because they're all around you in the communion of saints. So for good to talk to them, be, stop being such a snob, you know. Just because you're going around in the flesh doesn't entitle you to look down your nose at those who are more metaphysically challenged. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We'll all be together again in the flesh. You're going to need friends. Be civil. It doesn't cost anything. Now, in the course of the liturgy, and have a look at Guardini again because he explains each thing, you know. Standing is honourable, has a very honourable place in, in history. I don't agree with the Conservatives who say that standing to receive communion is disrespectful. I don't think it's the best way to receive communion, but standing is not disrespectful. Sitting would be disrespectful, unless, of course, you were in a wheelchair or whatever. You couldn't sit. Standing is not bad. I think kneeling is the best. I think the traddies actually have a point. I'm afraid they do. I'm afraid they do. And here again, some priests are not distinguishing themselves about this, getting up on their high horse because some people prefer to kneel to receive communion. I mean, we just get on with it. If people want to kneel to receive communion, you give them communion kneeling. I mean, oh, Lord, do we have to have this little drama? And actually what they're doing is probably the optimum. Kneeling was probably more significant when we didn't have cushioned prie-dieu, all these six inches of foam on our kneelers in case our little kneesy poos, our little kneesy wheezies might be hurt. Kneeling, that's really just a slightly awkward form of sitting. Kneeling should be kneeling. There should be some contact with an, an unforgiving surface or it's not kneeling. But anyway, when you should kneel, kneel. When you should stand, stand. Follow the rubrics. Cross yourself. Bow. Genuflect. As C.S. Lewis, good Belfast Protestant, reminded us, we are physical beings and the way in which you behave with your body will influence your mind. Remember the reinforcing circle. The more you believe, the more you should do. The more you do, the more you believe. Now, I think reception of communion on the tongue is preferable, to be honest with you. I think the move to communion in the hand was very badly judged. It was never mandated by the council. I think you should receive on the tongue. In the present COVID crisis, I can see the point, all right, there's a public health issue, and I would suggest that the best compromise there is that you would receive in a very, very ancient manner, going back to the beginning of the church's history, and I'm not being antiquarian about this, because, you know, you can't be pious. The twelfth condemned antiquarianism, whereby, you know, everything had to be whatever the primitive church did, and everything since was just a load of nonsense. So, I mean, that's crazy. But at the same time, you know, you, when we have to deal with a really tricky business like this, there's nothing wrong with consulting the earlier tradition of the church to see if there's something there that we can use. So a very good compromise is to receive communion on the right hand and then to convey it to your mouth straight with your hand without picking it up and then lick your hand. And if you think that looks undignified, it is undignified, but it's a lot better than having particles of the true presence all over your hand and falling on the ground. I lick my fingers sometimes if I'm stuck. I remember one of my sisters gave out to me after Mass. She said, oh God, we were so embarrassed, she said. You're up there slobbering, licking your fingers like an idiot. I misjudged. I didn't have enough water to cleanse, to purify my fingers. So I licked them. But I mean, you don't want the consecrated species on your fingers like that. 
because the sacred pollutes. Think about it. It, the sacred is so other, is so special, that it is dangerous to have it on your hands. It is dangerous to have it lying around. It is reserved, especially in the tabernacle, or it is consumed. If it falls on the ground, it must be taken away later and carefully dissolved. Now, there's a point for all of this. So, the greatest care, because you are dealing with the consecrated host and the true presence of Christ. Now, either you believe that or you don't. If you don't, you shouldn't be receiving communion. I won't say you shouldn't be in the church, in fairness. You should be in the church. Even if you stop believing, if there's some instinct that draws you still to go into church, you should follow it, but not receive communion. You should put that off. You know, don't rush the fences, but do go to church. But that doesn't exempt you from the manners, because that's one of the ways in which you will come back into the faith, is is through practicing it through God's table manners, through the, the etiquette of behaviour in church. And I, again, as I said, I would avoid extravagance. One of the problems with very devout people is they can sometimes overdo it. So very devout priests will sometimes hold the host up for far too long. Now, I've got into the habit of holding it up for longer than I used to, influenced by one or two very devout younger priests, and I was impressed by what they did. And parishioners like it because it gives them time at the elevation to say their prayers. But I wouldn't hold it up for too long. I don't know where you draw the line. I wouldn't hold it up for too long. It's not approved of, it's not part of the liturgy. I just wouldn't do it. But I would not be inclined to just flash it, as sometimes the case. People should be able to see it and make a short prayer. So a very devout priest can sometimes overdo it. Likewise, I've seen devout younger priests, often younger ones, and, you know, they'll genuflect after the consecration, and they don't come back up for ages with the result that in one church I know, they thought the priest had collapsed behind the altar and one or two of the old women went, they went around the altar to see was he all right. And he was there at his prayers, deep in prayer. Look, it would have been better if he had kind of followed the rubrics. (laughs) A deep and genuine genuflection and perhaps a slight delay, a slight delay just to lengthen and let everyone say their prayers and then come back up for air. But in the same way the lay people, try not to distract the people around you. Edify, not distract. So if you're too extravagant in your devotions, I mean, if you throw yourself shrieking on the ground every time, feel very devout, you'll find, you know, it really has a very distracting effect. And it doesn't really add to the liturgy. I know you'd think I'm overdoing it here, but honestly, I have occasionally seen people and they have created chaos. I saw one woman about two years ago and, I mean, nobody, it was during the Easter ceremonies and nobody could concentrate because every second minute she would go, oh my Jesus, praise be Jesus. And she kept at it right the way through the whole thing with the result that nobody could concentrate on their prayers and people would have loved to strangle her. You know, so you had all that aggression as well. It didn't really help anyone. I think the whole congregation was in mortal sin by the end of it. It was, it was absolute chaos. Again, love should be expressed in detail. St. Jose Maria Escriva was very, he was very big on this and very good. And the story is told about him that in, in one of the Opus Dei houses, he once saw a painting that was crooked. He passed it in the morning. It was an ordinary painting. I don't think it was a holy painting. It was an ordinary painting or a print. And he passed it in the morning and it was crooked. So he just left it there just to see. And people passed it all day. It was a busy house. People passed it all day. And it was still crooked in the evening. So he brought everyone in the house together and he gave them a talk on the love of God. And some of them were in tears at the end of it. And he just said, look, 
If we cannot even have a loving, detailed approach to our environment and where we live, how can we hope to serve God with love and attention? So I just ask you to consider that. If you think I'm being picky about behaviour in church, consider that every single thing you're doing is with love. If a husband, all right, now I'm being sexist again, but fair enough, I'm a hopeless case. Let's say a husband wants to buy flowers for his wife, which is a beautiful romantic gesture. And she doesn't need flowers. She can't eat them. She can't use them to hold the door open. She can't, you know, you can't build anything with them. You, what's she going to do with flowers? What would you pay for a nice bunch of flowers now? At least 20 euro, I'd say. Maybe 50. It's wasted. But not wasted. It couldn't be spent better than being wasted. Because it's like the incense at the altar. It is done for love. It is done gratuitously in love. To show love. And that's never wasted. I mean, all right, if he's spending a fortune on flowers for her every day, they would need to sit down and have a talk because they won't have enough to eat. But the place would be full of flowers. But you know what I'm getting at here? It's a big mistake to despise the detail. The devil is in the detail, as they say. What is it, Mies van der Rohe, the architect, he used to say, the um, God is in the detail. Love is not afraid of detail. On the contrary, love lives in the undergrowth of detail that makes up life. In the tangled undergrowth of detail. I would say to altar servers, okay, now I don't know whether altar serving is going to outlive COVID, but I would say to altar servers, the sight of a group of servers who are distracted and blathering among themselves and who during communion stare at the people receiving communion, literally staring down their gullet, is not edifying. If you're serving Mass, you should be like the Household Cavalry or one of the Queen's Guards. You should be imperturbable, expressionless. You should be like a top head waiter at table, a consummate professional, totally giving up that hour for the edification of others, to not be a distraction and in fact edify, to contribute to the sacred liturgy. You lose yourself in the liturgy. You are its ignoble servant. As a young child will absorb that like a shot and take great pride in it. They show no expression. They do not talk to each other. They are smooth, elegant in their movements. They know what they're doing. They're not distracted. They're not going about like headless chickens. If they make a mistake, they keep going. Don't draw attention to themselves. The quality of the theatre in this Inevitably, and as I've said before, there's a quality of the sacred in the theatre. So I wouldn't despise it. And here we have to look at the way everything is done here. Even if the sacristan is leaving things out at the beginning, taking away the thing, the sacristan's dress and deportment are crucial. In the old days, the sacristan used to wear a soutane, a cassock like the priest. The sacristan's deportment is crucial. If things are being slung about and sacred things are being treated disrespectfully, what does that say to people? What does it say to yourself? What does it say to God if his table manners is being so completely ignored? Look, I'm not going to keep on at this. The point I'm making in this is that the way you conduct yourself in the church is an expression of your belief and your love for God and it is also a means of reinforcing it. If you neglect it, no good will come of it. If you become obsessed with it, you could become Pharisaic, 
form for form's sake and the whole thing would become outward show. I totally accept the danger of that. I have heard people comment about these perfect liturgies, immaculately performed, that they were dead liturgies. And of course they weren't dead because the true presence of our Lord was there. But I know what they're saying is that people were so fussily obsessed with form. And I've heard um, even people who are devoted to the Latin Mass comment that that can happen too with some of the people who have relearned or learned for the first time the old liturgy, is that it's so complicated, it takes a while to master, that they become slavishly obsessed with the details and they forget the lovely ease and grace, the balletic grace with which that liturgy was often performed at its best. You know, if you're serious about it, learn it so well that it looks easy. It should look easy, otherwise you'll, you're just going to distract the congregation completely. And if you're in the congregation, you'll distract everyone around you completely. And if you're loud enough, you'll distract the priest as well. These are God's table manners. Newman once said, it wasn't the ideal of the university, where he talks about the gentleman. He describes the gentleman. He said, one of the great attributes of the gentleman, and by implication he was talking about the lady, is that he wishes everyone to be at their ease. He wishes everyone to be happy to be at their ease. He wishes to cause no pain, to cause no hurt. He may not be able to do that or to guarantee it in life, but that is his wish. And in the same way, going into the church, you can say like Thomas More, I wish harm to none. I do harm to none. I pray for all. You go into the church and devote yourself as best you can to the table manners of the Lord. And don't disgrace us all by acting like a complete muck savage at the table. A good story, I remember. This is the way kids can absolutely destroy you at the table. I hope maybe I've told the story before I forget. A relation of mine, he was out visiting with some of his siblings in a neighbouring house. And uh, lemonade and biscuits were on the table. He took a biscuit, uh, very properly, and a glass of lemonade and didn't take any more. And the woman of the house, as we used to say in Ireland, the woman of the house looked down and she said, we'll call him Tommy. She said, Tommy, she said, take more, there's plenty. And he said, no Mum said to us before we came down that we should have manners and not eat you out of house and home like your crowd do when they come down to us. <laughs> if a kid tells you that, it means he heard <laughs> We should decide when we go down to church, we'll behave as if there's some rearing on us. We'll behave as if we are what we are, adopted into the family and court of heaven and as if we are at home there. We are in the house of our Father and at the table of the Lord. We should be at our ease and our manners should come naturally. And if we choose to take our tea from a saucer, we should do it without slurping. Etiquette may vary, but it captures something of the true, of the loving and of the beautiful. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>